Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. Stephen Long. Welcome back to The X Factor, the podcast for leaders by leaders. I'm here today with Dave Nordell. He's a consultant and a former command chief master sergeant in the United States Air Force. Welcome, Dave. How are you today? Hey, I'm great, Steve. Hey, I appreciate this. You know, we we were chatting a little bit before we got on here live, which was which was helpful. And you were telling me you taught at the academy. And, uh, you know, I was looking at obviously a fan of anybody that wants to do this kind of leadership and kind of where you're taking things. But uh, uh, you taught at the academy. So you you shaped the minds of the people that have led our military for a long, long time to include either. Go ahead. Scary thought, isn't it? No, I think it's awesome I, because, you know, um, uh, military leaders can lead military leaders, but having people that come from backgrounds with different perspectives is huge. And we'll talk a little bit about that, you know, as, as we go on today with this, um, about having perspective and about trying to see things through other people's eyes. So I'm sure you learn from the students, but what they got from you, um, that translates into some pretty critical situations. And, yeah, you know what's what was unique about that experience is the um, was the civilian perspective that I I was able to provide, but one of the things I learned there is that um, you know the quality of people who they attract to the Air Force Academy is really second to none, and so it's pretty much like a chef in a kitchen. As long as you got good ingredients, then it's really up to the chef not to screw up the meal. Right. Okay. And, you know, the quality of people, you know, that that, that attend uh, the United States Air Force Academy is so great that basically my job and I think most of the other people's jobs there was just pretty much don't screw them up and just provide the guardrails that are required for adaptation into the Air Force you know, from a civilian background, and then let them let let their talent just develop and shine. So, well, it might please you to know, um, because when you're a command chief, you're working right next to the boss, whoever that is, wing commanders, numbered Air Force commanders, and even the you know the chief of staff of the Air Force. You're you're in those influential circles, and so they won't admit it to you. But I've heard many times in a in a quiet room, somebody mumbled at something that said. You know, a professor at the academy said once, and so those those things don't go away through the years. It's not like you just ship them off and they forget. So it's it's all there. It's pretty cool. That that that, that the that's in a scary way that might be true. So why don't you uh, help the listeners understand? You know, in terms of the hierarchy, where that command chief, master sergeant lies, because you know, in my time at the academy, I just gained a tremendous amount of respect you know, for the leadership from the enlisted uh, uh, side of things. Right. So we're lucky. You know, I I tell people, you don't realize it, but the day you go to basic training in San Antonio, Texas, the first day you're there, they're starting to teach you to be a leader. Mm -hmm. And so the other thing that I used to tell the second lieutenants when I was, you know, when I became a chief and even before that, but, you know, the day you graduate a second lieutenant from the United States Air Force Academy, they outrank 85% of the people in the United States Air Force, right? <laughs> so that in a big hierarchy, that's where they're at. Well, there's kind of two forms of leadership, right? There's leadership, um, you know, uh, based on just your position and your rank or your title or wherever you fit in a corporate environment or a, or a military environment. And then there's leadership that comes along with experience and rank and, and being put into situations where, 
you um, you have influence um, based on that. The the top two ranks in the Air Force are senior master sergeant and chief master sergeant. Mm-hmm. And the reason those are there are uh, that you'll notice the Air Force doesn't have warrant officers. The Army still has warrant officers. And those warrant ranks, the reason they switched that and they made those two, they're called super grades. The reason they made those two super grades in the Air Force was to kind of replace those to be those senior leaders that not only are leading the enlisted force during the development, train, organize, equip, develop, uh, you know, the sustainment pieces um, and working as the as the conduit for the for the HR piece for the for the commanders to make decisions. But also to fill that uh, to fill that kind of technical tactical role uh, when you're out in in the, uh, in the in an environment, especially a combat environment. So, for instance, you know the captain needs to needs to go to X Y Z, and you're and you're running a running a mission set. Well, a chief will step in and do that, and then he'll he'll fill that role. Now he doesn't come along with the with the command authorities for discipline and those type of things, but the rest of it it kind of works that way. And then the biggest piece of being of being even you know the the senior enlisted force, he's 70, 80, 9, all the services. One of our number one charges is to to grow and develop the young leaders um, to make sure that they're ready to take on those senior leader positions when they get into command positions and those type of things, and to be there side by side to kind of keep them out of trouble. So mm-hmm. you know, it's a lot of times the boss will come to you and say, Hey chief, you know, can you find or do X, Y, and Z? And then you go do it. And then, the, you know, the young ones will say, well, how did you do that? And the answer to that is you don't need to know it. It's moral, ethical and legal, but the rest of it you don't really need to know. And they start to learn that early on how to utilize the the force and that through uh, through us. So, yeah, a lot of exposure um, it carries a lot of weight. You know, our, our 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 chief master sergeant of the Air Force, along with the master chief petty officer of the Navy and and the sergeant major of the army and the, the you know the sergeant major of the marine corps they sit on capitol hill and they testify i mean they fight they fight for money and resources and quality of life and they do those type of things so uh, very influential positions um you know as as the pyramid gets skinnier at the top uh people get selected for for jobs that they have an aptitude in uh steve i started in the air force i came in i wanted to be a plumber i came in in 1984 i wanted to be a plumber Mm-hmm. Um, always wanted to go in the Navy from the time I was a little kid, used to get up and watch John Wayne storm the beaches of Iwo Jima over and over and over again, because that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be on those destroyers and prepping the beach. And uh, the day all the recruiters came to my high school, the Navy guy was, uh, let's just say he wasn't on his game. And the Air <laughs> Force guy put his arm around me and off I went. So 30 plus years later, um, you know, after a 30 year career, um, it was all about uh, Master Sergeant John Dees was his name, and I'll never forget him. And it was all about attitude. So we're going to talk a little bit about that today when we get into into some of the some of the more uh, leadership focused things that we talk about. And it was all about his attitude that day, and and kind of what drove me drove me that way. So yeah, I went in to be a plumber, and the Air Force said, you know, we're looking at you and looking at kind of you know the data that you provided through your testing and those type of things, and you should probably go into medicine. And it was the it was absolutely a number one perfect thing for me. And if you'd have told me growing up as a small, I came from a small farming community. I grew up on a dairy farm in the middle of nowhere. The, the book is the book I wrote is based a lot on, on my farm experiences and then how they translated all the way to the combat zone. And uh, if you'd have told me growing up on the farm that I would someday be a registered nurse and do shock trauma in all different kinds of environments, I'd have said, you're crazy. Nobody would, nobody in high school would have ever even pegged me for that. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, there you go, you know, throw me in the United States Air Force. And the next thing you know, 
uh, I'm off and running. And I started off as a straight leg medic and rode the ambulances and did the EMT thing. And then, you know, the Air Force is a wonderful place because it has its own community college and it ties a lot of your successes to your education. Uh, I went in the Air Force and thought, man, I can get away from school because I wasn't going to be good at it. Had an English teacher that told me I should go in the military because I'd never make it in. Uh, I'd never make it in college. So <laughs> 30 year military career. I think I was pretty successful. Uh, got four college degrees and I wrote a book. So <laughs> I, I think I came out. I think I won. I think she I think she would say today that she missed that one. But well, now she's probably taking credit as far as motivating you. Right. There you go. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, what she wrote in the margins of the paper weren't very motivating, except in, in the fact that I passed that along through the years when people would stand in front of me and tell me they didn't think they could do something or they didn't think that they were able. Okay. And that's uh that's obviously as far from the far from the truth as, as possible. So yeah, pretty pretty blessed career. And so medicine took me a lot of directions, Steve, which is amazing. And for your listeners, I think is really important because sometimes we get stovepiped early on. So for instance, I and I know you're an educator and and you could have chosen a thousand different places to do your PhD, but it took you a place and and you taught, you know, you teach in your discipline. Um, I got to work with higher education during COVID for a year and it was an amazing experience. We can talk about that, have a laugh maybe. <laughs> but uh, um, it's it's amazing how uh, in leadership, if you have the core foundational things figured out, right? Because when we say leadership, I mean, you don't lead a computer, right? Mm-hmm. And you definitely don't lead by hitting the send button. We're going to talk a little bit about that too. Um, you don't lead... Uh, metal and material and machines and you don't lead that stuff those are tools that um you use to get a job done or a mission set done or 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 those type of things what you're leading is people Mm -hmm. well if anybody thinks that there's 12 ways seven hows and 29 whys to to get to leadership they're i think this is dave's personal thing i think you're crazy however that works well for our our um our society, our American society, we, you know, we're very McDonaldized, mm-hmm. and so when we when we move forward in the in the leadership world, really what we want to do, I'll give you an example, make you laugh. Um, you're a fitness guy because I've seen your water bottle, so that's a good. <laughs> um, that's true. So it's awesome. I know. Look at that. That's that's mm-hmm. that's the best prop in the world. <laughs> um, when you uh, when you, our society is very, and you probably saw this in the academy quite a bit. People really like the answers to the test. So yeah. it's so it's very easy for me to write a book, and it's not in my book, but for, to write a book to say, here's the seven habits of a leader. Now, that's a Maxwell thing, right? Mm-hmm. And Maxwell's got a lot to add, and he's been very, very successful. But when you say it's the seven habits, you might lose your audience a little bit because what they do is they'd skim the whole book until they find a page that actually has the page that says one, two, three, four, five, and they tear that out and they stick it in their cubicle. Mm-hmm. And they think that they've got that kind of figured out. Well, you went back to explain chiefs. Chiefs sit in rooms to remind people that it's not a cookie cutter when it comes to people. When it comes to motivating, training, equipping, organizing, and to doing all of those things. Mm-hmm. Because chiefs have been there. So you'll appreciate this because you raised a lot of them coming out of the academy. I said to my boss when I was at 20th Air Force, 20th Air Force is the numbered Air Force that uh, has the... the uh, oversight of all the nuclear missiles in the United States of America. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm sure you keep up with your Air Force stuff. So if you want to talk about missiles offline, 
commander getting fired for indiscretions and the cheating scandal, I was the chief through all of that. And I got to sit with Martha Radich and help my boss do the 60 Minutes interview that went with that. Okay. And when Martha Radich was doing the interview with General Weinstein, the, the work up to that, um, I will tell you that uh, that I was the guy sitting next to him. So, Okay. All right. Well, why don't you tell everybody, you know, now that you're retired from the Air Force, what you're doing now and, and what you're all about? Sure. So, um, you know what, Steve, my computer locked up on this side, so I hope I don't lose you. If I do, can you're we good. jump back on? Yeah, you're good. Okay. Um, so we'll just we'll just keep going until something goes wrong. <laughs> uh so restate that question again. I got sure. Uh why don't you just uh you know, now that you're retired from the Air yeah. Force, why don't you tell uh tell the listeners who you are and what you do? Yeah, so when I retired, I ran I I managed restaurants, managed 13 subway sandwich shops for a year. Another leadership experience. We can talk about that later. No, now what I'm doing now is um I'm doing some consulting work for healthcare. Mm-hmm. On the emergency management side of things, my graduate degrees in disaster and emergency management. So I'm the guy that tells you which way to drive out of town during the hurricane and what to do during COVID and those type of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I do some of that consultancy work too, and uh, and obviously um, I'm really involved with uh, the title of the book is giving back life and leadership from the farm to the combat zone. I'm really involved with a lot of people in that uh, in the uh, Gen Z all the way to the geriatric millennials and seeing if I can make an impact with them. Uh, moving forward to kind of build better bosses. And I don't want to steal that. Um, building better bosses is a John Rennie thing. Who's a great Navy guy that's out there kind of doing some similar stuff that I am. Uh, uh, and he's doing it quite well. And so, you know, just giving people an opportunity to build some leadership skills and to do those things. And I speak uh, and I work, you know, here in the community uh, on boards and, and a nonprofit uh, sit on a non- glitch, but we're back here with uh, Dave Nordell. Uh, so Dave, why don't you uh, continue telling people uh, who you are and what you do? Sure. Like I said, Steve, I had a rock go through the window of my truck this morning, and now we had a technical glitch. So who knows what the rest of the day holds. But hey, we overcome. We'll talk about that a little bit. Just a so anyway, yeah. So like I said, you know, I, I, I'm doing consulting. I'm doing some mentoring. I'm, you know, it's it sounds like I'm a little all over the map, but it's really about giving back. I'm in a situation now where where, you know, I, I, I've had um, some wonderful nuggets from wonderful people and uh, and been through uh, quite a bit. You know, I have people stop and say, did you really do all of that stuff? And I'd say, God, I wish I'd made some of it up because uh, there's a lot there, you know. And and um, as I write in the book, uh, it's not uh, this is not a book about Dave climbing the mountain and winning the medal and uh, and being that guy. Uh, it's a book about it's real life stuff and it's uh you know how i grew up and things i learned uh, on the farm and how that's translated into my leadership life um you know as well as i do that uh anybody anybody when they find a leader that they really really like it doesn't mean that everybody likes them the same or even likes them you know uh, or or admires their leadership style so we all have different styles and those kind of things and so i bring a style uh, to my community and to the, you know, to the larger masses at large um, in advisory capacities, especially with with people that are running companies, small and large, and uh, and to young, to young aspiring leaders and uh, trying to bridge the gap between our generation and their generation, which is, as you know, um, especially teaching, you probably taught long enough, you saw generations come through the academy that they just are motivated by different things. And so there's no cookie cutter approach. And I uh, I'm out there trying to trying to help people uh, have different recipes to to feed the masses. So 
Well, what attracted me to you and your and your story and your book, Dave, is that it's it's real world stuff. Okay, it's see, you know, a lot of people want to hear from, you know, the uh, the superstar CEOs or, you know, the high profile generals or admirals. Um, But the reality is very few people get to that level. And those leadership um, responsibilities and tasks are very unique to that position. But also. What, by getting to that position, um, they've learned a few things along the way is how to buffer themselves from certain problems. Okay. But in your position, you know, as a, um, as a command chief master sergeant, you are the person between the rock and the hard place. Okay. And that's where most people are. That's where, you know, the, the middle managers are, even up to the senior managers. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why people want to get to that C-suite so they can buffer themselves from, from many of the problems. But for most people, they can't. They're, you know, they're, they're not, you know, they're not immune to it. And so uh, I think the, the lessons that you, uh, that you provide are just really important because it's real, you know, it's what most people are facing these days. Right. So, you know, I guess we can jump in it. We can go any direction you want with this um, and throw a little throw a little Ph.D. academia in here because there's some learning to learning to be done with that. Um, so there's some adages. I guess we can, you know, I'll just I'm going to I'll take this the way I think it should take foundationally. There's a couple of things. Nobody. This is this is not mine. You've heard it before, um, but it's so true. Uh, nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care about them. That's absolutely that's absolutely job one. Mm-hmm. So the day that you become a leader, the day that somebody says, hey, we're going to make you a manager, a director, a, a coordinator, whatever it is. And here's Billy, Joe, Jane, Jerry, fill in your blank. And they're your charge. Mm-hmm. Your life, your the life as you know it, as you knew it, stops. The life of... I get up in the morning and it's Dave's bed that gets made. It's Dave's clothes that gets put on. It's Dave's car that he drives. It's Dave's schedule that he does. And you know, I go from here to here and I do these. Those That's over. Mm-hmm. That is over. Your first cross check in the morning and your last cross check at night are your charges mm-hmm. because they're people. Mm-hmm. They're not, they're not, they're finely tuned gears in a German clock. Mm-hmm. And they have to be treated that way because it'll last forever. Because mm-hmm. the German clock lasts forever. If you take care of it, if yeah. it gets its maintenance, it gets the things it needs. They're fine. They're not bread and gasoline. You treat people like commodities, and they they exhaust. Well, that service component of leadership is absolutely required if that leader is interested in developing their people. If they don't care, then then they don't then they won't service their people. But in in, in today's economy, right in this climate. The you know as what what you call the your charges, but the workforce in general, right, requires the leader to be actively engaged, right, in 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 working with them, and 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 that's what that's what builds trust, right? That you know that's what you know that's what shows whether they're a good communicator or not, right? Uh, that shows whether they're uh, the uh, the workforce. Uh, contributions are being valued, 
okay, if they're being respected, if they're being heard, right? Without that service component, right, all that goes Huge. down down the drain. Huge. Yeah. So you covered you covered you covered a couple of things. One is uh, you said communication and you said heard, mm-hmm. which are the same things. Exactly. However, the communication skill that we refuse to work on is listening and hearing. Yeah. Um, I was terrible. I'm, I, I still give myself a C minus. I rarely give myself an A on anything because it just keeps me working harder. But uh, <laughs> so here's a story because I'm a master storyteller, but my stories are different. They're not the Hobbit. My stories are real. No kidding. Right. So. Mm-hmm. So I got selected as one of the six initial medics out of about 100 guys to go stand up the unmanned aerial vehicle program for the Air Force. So that's mm-hmm. the beginning of the drones, right? Mm-hmm. From the drones of what we know today, this was the right stuff. We're out in the desert in Indian Springs, Nevada, putting windows back in vehicles and sweeping out old buildings and waiting on airplanes to start making this a weapon system. Mm-hmm. The guys were doing technical orders on on on, on working on the airplanes on on legal pads with a pencil. And they would they would write a step in and they'd figure out, no, we want to do this. And they would erase it and they'd start it over and they'd staple them and hand them to the next guy. And that's how we did it all from scratch. So obviously, the majority of the support staff there were all kind of handpicked from the Air Force based on our accomplishments up to that point in time. So we were smart people, right, that had you know good ideas and we were strategy people, no matter where we were. At the time, I was an E5 and um, had a lot of bright ideas and I was a great transmitter. Man, I could... Stuff could get in here and come out, you know, get in my head and come out of my mouth fast. Mm-hmm. It's good. And it was righteous. And, and yeah, I put some thought into it, but um, I was an overtransmitter. So I go to a meeting with my boss. This is a, a strategy meeting for the, for the unit. And it had a lot to do with human performance. And I was kind of the guy. It was my, it was my project. And I went into this meeting and I ran over the top of, I wasn't a chief then. I ran over the top of chiefs. I ran over the top of the boss because I just had my stuff and I needed to get it all out there. And I, mm-hmm. I got it all out there and I slapped the table and puffed my chest out and we left the meeting. <laughs> and my boss grabs me by the red, great guy. So, so Roy Campbell uh, retired as a senior master sergeant. He's from the hills of Kentucky. The Eastern Hills, a total hillbilly. I mean, the version of hillbilly. I mean, he didn't have indoor plumbing until like he was 18 years old. So coal miner's son. Mm -hmm. And um, he grabbed me and he said, he said, you're a really smart guy. And he goes, and you've got a lot of really, really good ideas. And he goes, and those ideas are going to get better as soon as you learn to shut your mouth. And so, and so what happens from that? So I go back to the office. I, I feel bad for myself for a day or two. And then I took a three by five card. It's in the book. The, 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 the title of the chapter is listening on a three by five card. And I wrote the word listen in block letters and I stuck it in my left front pocket. And from that time on for years, I took that either literally or figuratively with every meeting. And when I wanted to overtransmit, I would reach in and grab that card to kind of back me off. Still have to work on it today to this day. Still have to. I just it's just counterintuitive to me. And so I have to work on it. But as soon as you start to listen and as soon as you start to hear, Mm -hmm. then people feel like you value them, which is the caring piece. Mm -hmm. Then they start to share. And the amazing thing is, is then when you shut your mouth, 
then you find out where the cockroaches are, where the leak is, where the safety problem is. You start to find out all of this stuff. You want to talk about padding yourself in a CEO position? That's mm-hmm. how you pad yourself. You mm-hmm. pad yourself because I always, I used to always tell the airmen, you know, by the time you call me the chief to fix a problem, it is a 10 alarm fire. It is a whole mountainside involved in a major forest fire. I said, you guys are the ones that are there when the first ember strikes the first dry tinder. Mm-hmm. So if we don't have a communication chain where I know when that happens, then all we have to do is just stomp on it really hard and make it go away versus having to call in all of these resources and try to, you know, save the little bit of stuff that's not already burned down. So that's huge. Mm-hmm. So the so the next two levels of the adjunct of that then that I write about is knowledge is power. Now I'm going to stop there because every CEO or general officer understands that. If you know something that somebody else doesn't know, that is a very powerful thing. Right. You can maneuver in rooms. The halls of my youngest son worked in, or he just finished, he's, he's working for a nonprofit now, but he just finished working for a U.S. senator here in Montana, up on the hill. Mm-hmm. And he's 27 years old. He's amazing to listen to talk to how his mind works. But having when you walk into rooms, having that nugget is a big deal. Mm-hmm. When you're leading people and you want people to stay in your organization Ride for the brand, right? Be be bought in, ride for the brand. Not be disengaged. You talk about keeping people engaged, having them actively engaged where they're contributing to the overall good of the organization. The knowledge that you have is only powerful when you share it. Mm-hmm. You have got to give that up, Steve. Mm-hmm. And this is where it starts to get complicated. And this is as a chief. Um, what I was going to tell you before we got cut off is, one of the funnies I used to do with the generals, and they'd never heard it because it's an enlisted man thing. We used to call things gobies, general mm-hmm. officer bright ideas. Mm-hmm. And that is the person that is so far removed from the actual tactical aspect of things. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the guy or gal that moves the deck chairs around on the Titanic. And because it looks so nice, they keep telling themselves everything's okay. <laughs> because it's been so long since they put on a pair of rubber boots and gone four decks below and stood next to the guy working on the leak. Mm-hmm. And they don't want to do that anymore. And you're right. I heard that. I heard people say that cheap. I've done that. I don't want to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, sometimes in leadership, if the organization is not rock solid and you don't have all of those layers working properly, sometimes you do have to go back down. And I'm not talking about doing other people's jobs sometimes. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you need to replace people. I'm talking about staying in tune enough where you don't lose the third dimension. Right. We lose the third dimension by hitting the send button. Yeah. Yeah. That, that lack of personal contact. And, you know, when, when, when you're talking about that, you know, communication listening piece, uh, you know, the, 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 they're not just additive effects or even cumulative effects. There's exponential effects that not only, are, are experienced between you and the person or, or, or you and the team, but actually you know, impacts the entire organizational culture. And so, you know, when, when you have, you know, people like yourself who are more willing um, to listen and uh, they, what they're really showing uh, and demonstrating is their humility right? They're, they're, you know, we're all arrogant and we're all humble. Okay. And it's, 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 it's when we can slide over to that humble side of the continuum 
and actually put the follower first to see what they're all about and what they're going through. So we can, you know, so we as the leader can serve them. You know, what's been my experience is sometimes they're so shocked at that, that they don't know how to respond at first. But then they then they realize, well, wait a minute, this is somebody I can trust and actually talk about what I'm actually going through. Right. Right. Because all, you know, as a leader, all we're doing is accumulating data. Right. So we can help make the best decision, not only for that person, but for the group. So so you remember I told you that we started to learn how to be leaders in basic training on day one, even though we didn't know it. Mm -hmm. So here's this story. This is this is in the book. So I'm sharing some of these stories a little difficult. When I wrote this book, I'll tell you, I had a tear in my eye a few on a few chapters, especially when it got to, to, you know, some of the combat experience. But um, so remember, Dave Nordell grew up on a farm. I grew up in a brown community. I'm Portuguese. I'm, I'm a fourth generation Portuguese immigrant. and I'm the last Mohican in the family. Okay. So I'm the last one that all my lineage, even my, my son went and got his DNA done. He goes, I'm half Portuguese. I said, no kidding. You didn't believe me. I th- he thought that, he thought that, you know, that, that the large, large Portuguese family I was raised just by my mother. And then the rest of my community was um, Mexicans, mostly immigrant Mexicans. So I spent a lot of time working in the fields with immigrant Mexicans and learning their stories. So hold that thought. Okay. So, but it came with, um, all of the advantages of being on the farm and the things that I write about, it came with some disadvantages. And leaders always walk into always walk into any leadership situation with a handful of disadvantages. So we can look at disadvantages as being being a man, being 20, not 50, being whatever it is, whatever it is, being tall, being short, being, you know, having trouble with your weight, you know, or or, or you know, having a foot problem, whatever it is. You have you have disadvantages and advantages when you walk into situations. So I walk into basic training um, and uh, I would say over half of my flight came from either upstate New York or inner city Philadelphia. Okay, I had jokes and words that I used that I would use at the kitchen table back home that I quickly found out were not good. And in fact, they floated the other way. So I'm making a bed one morning. I'm, I, they made me a student leader. So I'm a squad leader. So now, I got, now I'm in charge of 12 guys. I've been in the Air Force for five minutes, and I'm in charge of 12 people. Think about that. Yeah. Right? And so the guy at the far end of my flight on the last bed was having trouble making his bed, and we were late. We were always late. My TI was late everywhere. And, uh, and so we're making the bed, and we're trying to get the corners right, the hospital corners right. And he says to me, he says, I can't get this corner right. And I turned around and in my country vernacular, I said, blank rig it. And it wasn't Jerry rig. <laughs> so we that all washed out. We went and did our stuff. And that night, a couple of proficiency advanced guys, they were prior army guys. They came to my bunk and they sat down. They asked me what my problem was. And I said, what's the problem? And they replayed this whole thing. And then they explained to me where they're from. They're, they were, they were, they were black. They were black Americans where they were from and, and what that word meant and all these. And I'm looking at them astonished. And I'm like, oh, I just, that's not in my bones. I didn't do that to offend anybody, but that's kitchen table talk where I came from. Well, we're going to give you some advice. You better figure out what the deal is. And Steve, from that day, now I'm 19 years old. From that day on, and the, the, the chapter in the book is called, you don't know what you don't know. So you better, you better get off your ass and find out. Yeah. Right. 
So um, from that day on, I said, I'm never going to let this pass. So when you're leading young females, I'm totally unequipped, right? I'm unequipped to do that. But mm-hmm. I'm not unequipped to listen to their story, to try and build some empathy, and to find people that have similar um, backgrounds and, and and some tools, a, a person to help fill those voids. So you don't know what you don't know, and you need to go find out. And this is the hardest part about rounding yourself out as a leader. Yeah. Because it is so easy to slap your chest and say, didn't you see my name tag? It says executive director on it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's fine and dandy, but you're acting like Dave Nordell, 19-year-old farm boy kid, finally out in the world. Mm-hmm. And there's some, there's some issues, you know, there's some, there's some changes that need to be, uh, that need to be instituted to change that. So, um, uh, what, what do you do? What are you doing to yourself? What, what are you working on in yourself? What are your conversations with yourself? And are you courageous enough to put yourself into situations that are scary? uncomfortable and 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 put you at a disadvantage are you able to do that and and so there's a certain level of that type of vulnerability and then the other vulnerability is you gotta be able to tell your story because none of us went straight to the top Mm -hmm. none of us have had perfect relationships i've been married once before i you know i i have i have jokes that i tell about that and they're they're appropriate jokes they're not they're not awful but the thing it was a huge learning experience for me and I'm not just going to let that go and hide it and not share that. So when somebody's having a relationship experience, I usually share that with them and other things, you know, and some of this stuff is, is, is in the book. So um, what did I cover there? I covered courage. Right. Mm-hmm. And I also covered this ability to build this empathy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you talk about putting a buffer in there, some of these buffers, Steve, and this is Dave talking, some of these buffers are not wanting to do that. Right. Cause it's the messy part of leadership. Well, you know, what what I've learned is ineffective leaders focus on the known knowns, on what they know, right? Uh, mediocre leaders take a take a step and they focus on the known unknowns. Joe okay. Harry. Yeah. Joe Harry's window. Okay. But then there's the, you know, but then there's the truly humble leader, the servant leader, right, who's focusing on the unknown unknowns. Right, willing to be vulnerable in front of their team and say, "No, you teach me because I don't think I know this." Right, and so where that—that's you know, but trust and respect, communication, all of that now start to blossom, and that's where you really get to become a really truly effective leader, one who can actually, you know, affect change. Right. You know, when I was telling that story, I could I could see on your nonverbals it makes you uncomfortable. That's a that's a hard story to hear, you know, and that, and 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 that's okay because because we probably all have something that's that's similar. And I get a lot of feedback from that on the book is, well, I didn't grow up on a farm, but boy, when I was, you know, my dad was a meat packer, and I can tell you, you know, we had the same type of experience or the same type of things that that you go through. And these things are these things are nuggets. I call them nuggets in the book. These are huge nuggets. Mm-hmm. And and if you want to run away from them and hide from them, then then you're probably not going to get where you where you truly want to be as a leader. You know, I I emphasize over and over again that leaders are only anointed and appointed by their peers and followers. Mm-hmm. Leadership is not this 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 title thing, and mm-hmm. it's not a position thing. 
Mm-hmm. You, you know, you you did a great job of just describing your Harry's window, right? So, and 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 you know that. But when you talk to people about that, they get really inquisitive. I've been teaching a lot of that. They want me to come and teach it. It's mm-hmm. a very simple concept. Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard the uh, the ad? This is another farmer thing. Have you ever heard the the, the saying, "Turtle on a fence post"? <laughs> oh, that is just. That, I gotta I gotta tell you why I left because I work very closely with the uh, uh, with the Air Force Academy football team. And oh, the coach, nice. And the coach at the time was Fisher DeBerry, a Hall of Fame coach. Oh, yeah. And when I get together with those football guys, that's the story they remember. The turtle on the fence post. And the, at the time, they couldn't understand, how, you know, why is he talking about a turtle on a fence post? You know, they're you know, 19, 20 years old. But now, right, 25 years later, that's the story that resonates with them. Yeah. Well, because, they're, because look what they're doing. Mm-hmm. They're leading flying units. They got high. They got high high safety areas. Those type of things, and and once you know that, all I, you can tell the story. I can tell the story because your listeners, there's got to be somebody out there that doesn't know what this is. And they can look it up. It's pretty easy to find. Mm-hmm. But think about knowing that story at the age that you're telling it, and then being in the position. It would make me feel pretty yucky. I would be looking around going, I hope I, I hope they don't think I'm a turtle on the fence. I got to deserve, you know, I got to have the capability to be up here. Right. I've got to belong and nobody should feel sorry for me and feel like they need to get to help me down. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, that's a big deal. That is a, that is a, that whole concept of how you're perceived mm-hmm. is a big deal. And quite honestly, all of the tools start foundationally. You don't, so you can help me with this. I use this data because I, I I pulled it over the years and it was given to me in some fancy class I went to at some point in time. The average age of the American uh, person that is in a position of leadership. Now, notice I didn't anoint them as a leader, but they're in a position of leadership. The average person gets their first formal leadership education or training at 42 years old. That's a little late. <laughs> well, it's way late. They 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 are probably in a directorship after having two manager jobs. Yeah, it's a little late in the game. And and it's amazing when you talk to the people that haven't had that, right? That haven't had any of that. You talk to them about situational leadership and job matching and the the basics. I mean, the very low level basics of how to do these things and the stuff that we're talking about. And they look at you and they go, "Well, I wish somebody would have told me that years ago." And then they'll automatically, they will tell you a story about somebody's career or life that they sent on a, on a negative path because they didn't have the tools. Mm-hmm. So yeah, knowledge is power only when shared. So as you go, you have to, you've got to pass this stuff on. Well, you know, as a, as a PhD, I'm looked at as the expert. And because of that, some PhDs take that as you know, uh, situational power, right? Just just like somebody with a title right. in, in an organization. And the way I always looked at it, well, it just gives me more opportunities. Everything I do is um, is really either a learning opportunity or a research opportunity. Right. And just, you know, speaking with you, this is a learning opportunity. So um, if, you know, when when leaders take that mindset, Adopt that mindset is every interaction that they come across 
whether it's uh, uh, below them, above them, beside them, or outside of the organization. Then it, it, it you know, basically they're they're practicing humility, and because of that, that's when they're able to uh, to learn and then basically take that data, you know, and and assimilate that data and synthesize it into what they already know to see if it actually checks out or how it actually conflicts, and then start if it does conflict, well then maybe I've been wrong. Maybe this is actually more mm-hmm. the right way to do it. Right. So, uh, it's I, I find it uh, fascinating, you know, in you know, particularly in your field as a, uh, you know, a, a, as a nurse and a medic, you know, in in combat, you know, where you have to make you know split second life saving decisions, right? And and how you're actually getting you know uh, getting data, you you don't have the luxury to be arrogant. Oh no. <laughs> oh no, and you, and you and you've got to go work for people. So when I showed up, you know, I'll tell, here's the story. I mean, here, this is kind of the. It's turned out to be the centerpiece of the book. And if you if you look behind me, you'll see the flag. So we can talk a little bit about that. Yeah. But, uh, um, so yeah, great example. So in 2008, you know, we're in the surge. We're in the 2007, 2008 surge in Iraq, and I'm the superintendent of the hospital. I'm a chief at uh, Grand Forks in North Dakota. And they select me to go to Balad to be the uh, the chief of the trauma center. So mm-hmm. the trauma center in Balad, the Air Force Theater Trauma Center, is the trauma center for the whole country. Everything filters in there. That's the whole medevac place. That's where you get in, get out. So almost everything, except for a few things around Baghdad, almost everything came to us. So it could be five seconds old or it could be five days old, but it was all there. And that includes terrorists. The enemy, all of it, kids, you know, 12% of everything we saw were kids. Oh, wow. So how do you get 235? I've, I've got to learn to shorten this story because it, it, uh, it will wear people out. But how do you get 235 medics all coming from all different parts of the world, everything from neurosurgeons to administrative specialists? How do you get 235 medics to coalesce and get a 99.5% survival rate? If you show up with your breathing and you have vital signs, 99.5% chance you're going to go home alive. Now, how do you do that? Mm-hmm. Well, I had a little time to think about it before I took off. And and we can, we can this is piggybacks off of where you were going. I decided two things. I had to have two things that were constants. One is shared pain, right? And the other one was an attitude, a constant, consistent attitude. I didn't know what that was going to be until I kind of, I kind of got there to get my head around it. So, I hate push-ups. I've always hated push-ups. Push-ups are necessary evil. Not so much. It's not so bad in the Air Force, but they're there. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I figured, you know what? I'm going to do a lot of push-ups. They make me better physically. Um, and I'm going to have people do push-ups with me, and we're going to share some pain. And it gave me time to slow things down where I could look people in the eye and kind of get dual feedback. Mm-hmm. So I get there. My, my, my shifts are about 18 to 20 hours. And I get my changeover done with my replacement. And my office, I had an office in the office building. It was an old Iraqi um, office building. And they built the trauma center onto it, the new trauma center. And so one of those offices was mine. On the other end of the hall, the far office was the chaplain's office. Mm -hmm. So lesson number one, right? You always need help. No matter where you are in a leadership role, you have to have help. And the people that you keep around you are important. 
So you and I both talked about being Catholic, so you'll get a kick out of this. So um, I would stop in the chaplain's office every morning and I would get on my knees and I would have them say a prayer. Mm -hmm. Well, Steve, one morning it was a Baptist minister. The next morning it was a Protestant. The next morning it was a Catholic priest. And we had one of the three rabbis in the whole Department of Defense there. Okay. <laughs> so guess what? The words were the same. <laughs> it's the same God. <laughs> it's the same deal, right? Yeah. But but I built my foundation every day, just a little bit, just a little bit of my foundation there. And then off I went. And I went down. The first place I stopped was with what I call the admin people. They're not admin people. They're 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 uh they're movers of God's will because those are the people that would get you off of the battlefield and home to your parents in a you know back to the stateside hospitals in 24 or 48 hours. You know, they're just amazing people. Mm -hmm. So we did our push-ups. We started with five. I had to do the Air Force thing, right? Start with five. I had Marines and Navy guys. They want to do 500, you know, but yeah. um, the Air Force, I said, we're going to do just five push-ups, you know, and I want to talk. The question after doing push-ups, Steve, the very first question was always, Chief, how are you doing? Totally innocuous question, right? Mm -hmm. The answer sets the tone for it everything so i told him i said i'm maximum fabulous <laughs> and they and that that's the reaction i get from everybody and they said what in the heck is that and i said it's the attitude it's the highest high it's on the hierarchy of attitude it's the highest you can be and i said and so i choose to be there and if i'm not there i choose to work all day to get there and we're gonna have good days and we're gonna have bad days but the end goal is going to be maximum fabulous mm -hmm. So a lot of push-ups and a lot of maximum fabulous. So I'm coming to the end of the tour and the boss says, what do you want? He says, you're leaving. You know, they do those in the combat zone. They do these funky, really quick get-togethers. And if you're lucky, somebody can find some ice cream and, and uh, they hit you on the back and slap your helmet and throw you on the plane and everybody switches over and away you go. But they wanted to have a little pause for me, which was awesome. And, uh, and so it, and to include my, my Turkish housekeepers and my Ugandan guards who also did push-ups with me and then they loved the maximum fabulous thing. There's a whole story that goes along with it. It's pretty cool. So the boss asked what I wanted and I said, I want one of the American flags from Heroes Highway, which Heroes Highway was a tented off area from the helicopter pad into the trauma bay when you were coming off the helicopters. And in the top of it was a gigantic American flag that if you folded it properly, it took about four people to carry it. It's huge. And those are all in the museums in the United States, around the United States. And if you go to a medical science museum in D.C., you'll see these flags. I can't remember how many was, but the very few. He goes, you're not going to get one of those flags. He goes, those are all spoken for. And I said, of course they are. I said, but I do want, and if you look behind me, I said, I do want the Red Cross, Red Crescent flag off the top of the trauma center. So flags are symbols right people fly flags people have you've got flags behind you. you've you got a kansas flag you've got a delaware flag you've got flags that oh, yeah. yeah so flags are big deals and people use flags because they want to belong to things mm -hmm. so they gave me this flag but the magic of the flag is that they took it down and got it embroidered i still don't know where they found the place before i got out of iraq but they found a place to embroider it and the top of it's my name or the top of it says uh blood theater hospital my name and rank on the bottom of it, below the cross and the crescent, it's the time that I served, and the last two words on that flag are maximum fabulous. <laughs> That's they gave me a flag. Yeah. I attribute maximum fabulous to 99.5% survival rate. 
I attribute it to the fact that I'm still in touch with a lot of those people. I attribute it to the fact that that even though all of us have probably left there with some level of PTSD, that they're healthier and in a better place because of that. Mm-hmm. And when I present this to people on the outside, they've made it part of their 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 culture and the way that they they want to lead. So how you walk into an organization, no matter what level you're at, if you lead people, if people are you're responsible for people, what comes out of your mouth is powerful. Yeah. Your nonverbals are probably just as powerful. And so when you talk about um strategic leadership so laying in something maximum fabulous being my thing for the time that i was there if we talk about that and then you talk about how you're perceived by your by your 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 subordinates the people that are working for you and with you how you're perceived boy how you carry yourself the worst times i've ever had as a leader steve was when my attitude got bad and my nonverbals got crappy yeah and uh, and so you, you you talked about football Watch. So I'm a Dolphins fan. So I watched the game this weekend. All right. Well, they beat Houston up pretty bad. They were up 30 to nothing at halftime. I watched the, I didn't watch the Dolphins anymore. I watched the Houston players. Yeah. Because that's a, that's a suffering organization. And I was trying to catch cues and to learn off of that. Yeah. And to see the frustration. So as a leader, you can lay that in. And if you do it with any level of consistency, that's it. That's the attitude of the organization. Well, one of the things that I've learned you know, as a psychologist is that pain and fear are the primary obstacles and inhibitors to growth. And when you talk about maximum fabulous, really anything less than that, pain and fear creep in. Okay. And, and so, you know, when, 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 you, when, when you share with me the, uh, you know, when, when, when your attitude, you know, went downhill, well, that's because there was some kind of pain or some kind of fear. And when you when, and when you started off the conversation, say, well, I hate doing push-ups, right? They're painful, right? But you do them anyway, okay? And so why don't you just share with the listeners about that transition is that when your attitude was, you know, less than maximum fabulous, right. what did you confront? How did you confront it? And then how did you overcome it? Was it pain or was it fear or was it a combo of the two? Right. So um, I will tell you that the biggest struggles I've had with less than maximum fabulous usually had to do with the leader. <laughs> so, so, but but when you feel leaderless in, in situations that are unstable, combat being one of those, mm-hmm. then fear and fear and uh um and pain creep in immediately, right? Mm-hmm. So for instance, you remember, so let's use this in, as an example. A guy scores a winning goal in a soccer game to win the World Cup. That's going on right now. That's Wins right. it, right? But as he's kicking the ball into the goal, the guy slides into him and he spikes him right in the middle of the chest. And he's laying there. And the announcer says, if he had missed it, it would hurt more tomorrow. <laughs> you, I, I, now this is out of maturity, Steve, because I've made the wrong decisions on this a lot. So this goes to the to the to the folks that are leaving learn are listening. You have to just like my PTSD, you have got to make friends with them immediately. Mm-hmm. And to get to maximum fabulous, you have to understand the pain, you have to understand what's causing it. And then you have to understand what you can affect and what you can't affect. And as soon as you draw in those boundaries, 
and you start working really hard. So now you're taking your energy, right? That's driven from, because that's, it's energy, negative or positive, it's energy. So now if you're going to channel this energy, how mm-hmm. are you going to channel it? Well, you can scatter it all over trying to fix world hunger, mm-hmm. or you can go down the, to the corner and feed the three homeless people. You can actually affect that. You can actually do something about that every day. But I can't feed everybody in Zimbabwe and all the rest of the countries around the world. I can't. They need it. I can't do that. But if I use up all of my energy trying to do all that, I become ineffective. So when you have pain and you have um, a less than good situation or, or an attitude that's driving driving negativity, you've got to figure out what that is. You've got to figure out what energy it's driving. And then you need to change the polarity on the energy mm-hmm. and keep it within your boundaries. So... Yeah, how's that for? I'm not a psychologist, but no, but yeah, but the 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 term polarity is 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 exactly correct. Is that we're you know each and every day we have a finite uh, amount of energy. Right? They're called energy pools, and we'll draw from them either effectively or ineffectively. And when we're on the negative polar side of it, is that we're just we're spending as much energy. Uh, avoiding our pain and our and our fear, than people who actually have you know, an effective mindset, where they're spending the exact same amount of energy, but they're confronting, not only confronting that pain and fear, they're actually seeking it. They're seek they're actually seeking the pain and fear because that's where the growth is. And so if we, if, if when people understand is that we're dynamic organisms and that we're either getting better or we're getting worse, that's where that really unique person steps into the limelight because now they're showing they're truly different because they're seeking pain right. and they're seeking fear. So can I add to that? I'm, I'm, his name's going to slip my mind. And if I say it, you'll know it. He's a motivational speaker. The Air Force has him around all the time. Um Oh, shoot. Anyway, he talks about he went to the University of Utah as a football player. He's probably going to get drafted to the NFL. Had a catastrophic injury his senior year and um, uh, couldn't play football anymore. And it blew up his whole life because he was that guy. He was the superstar athlete. He was on top of his game, so on and so forth. Um, had the ego that kind of went along with it and had to do a lot of relearning and kind of got reshuffled into, in, into society. But he talks about because I want to add to that, because this is very important, especially for those of us out there. We're losing 22 veterans a day to suicide and PTSD that is part of that. Not all of it, mm-hmm. but it's part of that. And so and that's pain. And there's energy that comes with that. And then you got to change, pick the polarity that goes along with that. And it's not just about that. But he talks about he says, you know, if you if you sprain your ankle really bad and you go to the doctor and he does all the doctor things that go along with that. And then he tells you, you know, do this with your ankle, bend your ankle, move your ankle like this 10 times a day. And you do that, you will, your ankle will improve to the point that you stretch your ankle, right? That pain. Mm-hmm. If you go to the physical therapist, what do they do to you? They, they, yeah, I they, just spent six months with a physical therapist and get right to the pain. Yes. Right. Yeah. And they take you, they, they take you right to the pain. Right. And, mm-hmm. and they work you through that. And they don't give you a lot of sympathy, especially in the beginning. They have no sympathy for you. No, they because want the pain. They, yeah, they want, they want the pain because the pain is the pain. But you would never get there by yourself. You have to have that person. Mm-hmm. So as you grow and you, you know, and you jump into this pain thing, this thing that you're talking about, you have to have somebody or something there that, has, that takes the walk with you. 
that yeah. gets you through because sometimes sometimes you can put your you can get yourself in a situation where um you're in a little too deep and you got to at least have a lifeline so yeah just take somebody on the journey that we're talking about what we're talking about now as a, as, a, as a leader i don't care where you're at you you have to have some form of mentorship mm-hmm. some form of mentorship you have to have some sort of peer support you have to have a peer group you, mm-hmm. you just you have to i mean even if it's golf putters you got to have something you got to yeah, well, the attitude of the group is contagious right and then you have to have a partner in your journey because we're all on a journey, and I, I don't, I haven't seen anybody that's taken any journey in life um, that has done that alone. And yeah. so maybe that's your spouse, maybe that's uh, it's your dad, maybe it's your mom, maybe it's your brother. Something you have to have a partner in your journey. Well, even even those people who you know who sail around the world on their own, they still have a support team that Absolutely. they're in constant contact with. Absolutely, even if they fly a pigeon and they drop some chocolate on you. <laughs> Something's gonna happen. I mean, it's like right. It's like the Tour de France, right? Yeah. The Tour de France is the ultimate because mm-hmm. the guys got to ride the bike. But there's guys in car. There's guys scattered all over that course. Oh, it's the team feeding sport. them and changing bike tires and all yeah, this running interference for them and all of it. Yeah, all of it. So yeah, it's um, um, yeah, that's a it's a it's a great way to put that. So, well, Dave, I, I wish we had more time. Yeah, no, you're good. It's, it's fascinating. Awesome. But uh, please uh, tell everybody the name of your book again. Sure. The book is uh, is uh, giving back life and leadership from the farm to the combat zone and beyond. And uh, it's very I wrote it for the type of people that say they don't have time to read books. You can consume a chapter in probably less than five minutes. Um, and at the end of it, there's nuggets. So even if you go to bed, you could probably read two chapters before you get sleepy. It's all digested. And it and it does and most people that have read it that enjoy it uh, they usually keep it around so that they can refer back to it because it really covers a wide genre of, of leadership and life uh, challenges and those type of things. So, well, why don't you tell everybody how uh, how people can uh, contact you? Sure, uh, my my website is one man one plan mt like Montana dot mm-hmm. com, and uh, on there uh, there's if you go on there and you click on work for Dave. Work with Dave, excuse me. Uh, there's a there's a um, a little sign up thing that'll send you right to my email. You can type a little narrative, even if you just want me to pick up the phone and have a conversation with you. Uh, you want me to to you know come and and do some uh, uh, at least on the front end a little little pro bono consultancy or or uh, you know advice giving. Uh, we can do that mm-hmm. and just touch base. Uh, you can get at the book on the website. You can get at pretty much everything that you'd want to know about me on the website. Yeah. Uh, for sure. And the book's on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and all the traditional places. It's an international bestseller now. So in a couple of pretty cool areas. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, I, I encourage all the listeners and even the uh, military officers to, to reach out to Dave because I think he has a lot to offer. So um, again, my name is Dr. Stephen Long. This has been the X Factor. Thanks everybody for listening and we will see you next time.